Amen. Thank you, Jason and Van. That was wonderful. Nate, thank you. Nate's so versatile. How many of you recognize the piano player today? You know who that is? Yeah. <laughs> this is a homecoming. Yeah. I didn't, I said, how long were you a member here? She said, since I was born until I was about 18. And I was like, that's amazing. So she said, this is like coming home. And that's wonderful to have you, Carly, with us and her husband, Daniel. Thank you for being with us today. Longtime Woodmont people, the Raiders, uh, wonderful people. Today, our text, uh, as we walk through the Gospel of John, is only three verses long. And I was telling Andy uh, this week, I said, could be a really short sermon, and, and he laughed, and I don't know why he laughed. Uh, I told my wife the same thing. It's only three verses. could be really short, and she laughed. I'm not sure what's so funny uh, about that, but it's amazing to see that as we walk through this gospel each and every week, it seems like the text is just so relevant, so incredibly applicable to whatever's going on in my life and the life of our church, and it's because the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and I believe that with all my heart. So today, this is an important text. It's really short, but it, it's, it's crucial to understand <clears throat> for a few reasons. One is it, it beautifully sets up the next passage, which we want to take our time on. I'm going to split the encounter with Nicodemus, with Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3 into two sermons so we're going to spend the next two weeks in this amazing story about the encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus where he tells them that he must be born again. The second important thing about this brief passage is it shows us something that we really need to understand about the human condition, about what it means to be human, to be born in the flesh. And then last and most importantly, this passage teaches us about the nature of believing, of what it actually looks like to have saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So together there's a lot of vitally important content, so let's listen carefully as we ask God to open the ears and eyes of our heart to see his truth this morning. Let's stand in honor of God's word if you're able to as I read John chapter 2 verses 23 through 25, hear now the word of the Lord. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You have a seat. So these, these three short verses serve as a transition passage. John uses little transition passages like this to get us from the, the cleansing of the temple and that uh, powerful encounter that we had last week into this beautiful section with Nicodemus and then the woman at the well, a very different kind of encounter in chapter four. Our own Reverend Trey Heyman is gonna be bringing us a word uh, from John chapter four as we dive into that encounter in March. I can't wait to, to hear that. This, this text starts out by reminding us that this is still during Passover. Remember Passover, took a month just to prepare for, and then it lasted for a week in the city of Jerusalem. It was a, a full seven-day festival, a, a really important celebration in the life of the Jewish people where people from all over the region would come up to Jerusalem 
as many as 250,000 of them would gather in this tiny little city to worship and to celebrate the miracle that God did in the Exodus of how the, the blood of the spotless lamb caused death to pass right over the people of God on that night of the final plague. So apparently while Jesus was in Jerusalem during this festival, he began to gain a following. People started to hear about what he was doing and these miraculous works that he was performing. He was ministering with power, with divine authority, and, and people started to catch on and, and, and hear about these amazing things he was doing. They said, wow, did you see that over there? He, he, he healed a lady. He cured that guy of, of blindness. I heard that up in Cana, he turned water into wine at a wedding celebration. It's amazing. This guy's great. Let's, let's follow him. Let's believe in him. Let's, let's add him to what we're already doing. Let's, let's make Jesus a part of our lives. So it sounds like a revival at first. If you stop right at 23 right there, that, that sounds awesome. We'd love to report that in our you know, annual report that many believed in the name of Jesus. That's, that's great. That sounds like wonderful news. But I think you all know that saying, this guy's great, and actually coming to a saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord are two very different things. What could have been a celebration, many believed in his name, turns out to be a tragedy. Because the very next verse says that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The, the cool thing about the Greek language is the, the word for entrust in verse 24 and the word for believed in verse 23 are the same word, pistuo. It means to, to have faith in, to believe in, to trust in. So if you read it in Greek, it looks like they believed in Jesus, but he didn't believe in them. Or, or they put their trust in Jesus' name, but he didn't entrust himself to them. It's one way to read it. it. Sounds pretty harsh, right? You're like, man, Jesus, these people are trying to follow you. And you're like, no, I don't believe in you. That sounds like Jesus is being unfair. But as we said before, this is not real faith that these people are expressing. This is not the kind of faith that moves mountains because a person is so radically captivated by the supremacy of Christ above all things. They're just following Jesus because he's the latest, greatest thing to pop up on their radar, and they think he can do some cool things, maybe in their lives. Following Jesus because you think he can do some neat things for you is not true Christian discipleship. If you're looking for Jesus to do some tricks in your life and bring some good luck to what you're already doing, if you're trying to add Jesus into what you're already doing, then you don't understand Christianity at all. Throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, people asked him to do something. They would always say, give us a sign, prove to us that you are who you say you are, the Messiah. And, and their hearts were stuck. In, in sin, in pride, in arrogance, and they wanted some kind of proof before they even considered opening their hearts into surrender and coming humbly in a posture of repentance to Christ. Before they opened their hearts to the life-changing truth of the gospel, 
In, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus encounters a group like this, some, some Pharisees. They're a, a, a sect of Judaism. And it says in, in Mark 8, 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. That can't be good, right? When Jesus sighs like that. <sighs> you know, as parents, when our kids are acting out, you know, we... <sighs> That's the kind of sigh I think that Jesus gives them. And he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Jesus leaves these hard-hearted Pharisees. He leaves them. He doesn't entrust himself to them. And in fact, he goes to the other side of the lake. He puts distance between them. We should carefully consider what we're asking of Jesus when we come to him. What kind of posture are we coming to him in? Are we coming with contrite, tender, open hearts, with repentance and humility? Or are we demanding that Jesus prove himself to us first? So of course Jesus knows these shallow reasons that these people in Jerusalem are following him during this feast. He knows these aren't real disciples. Verse 24 and 25 tell us that he did not entrust himself to these people, not because he's unfair, not because he's mean, not because he didn't like them, but because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about somebody else because he himself knew what was in man. He knew what was in humanity's hearts. D.A. Carson says that unlike other religious leaders, Jesus cannot be duped by flattery, enticed by praise, or caught off guard in innocence. Oh, I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> Jesus Christ is not merely a, a great prophet like Islam teaches. He's not some itinerant preacher who's self-promoting and trying to make a fortune either. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, sent by God as God, the Son, to, to put on flesh and move into our neighborhood, to dwell among us, to give us words of life, and then ultimately to die an atoning death on the cross, only to rise again from the grave, to conquer death forever. That's who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. We need to remember that. We need to remember that Jesus Christ is not human He's fully human, but he's fully God as well. And since he's God, being God, he does what God does, including knowing the hearts of all people. In Jeremiah verse 17, uh, in, in chapter 17, verse 10, the word of God Almighty comes to the prophet, speaking of God the Father. And Jeremiah records him saying, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. God the Father sees through whatever exterior pretenses we may put up, and he sees the reality of what's going on in our hearts, and so does Jesus. You know, many of us have gotten pretty good at hiding our inner reality from the outside world. We tend to put on a happy face, and when people say, how are you? We force a smile. We say, I'm great, when things, in fact, are not great. 
I had a professor in seminary who had had enough of these kind of shallow, superficial encounters. He was the chair of evangelism, the Billy Graham chair of evangelism at Beeson Divinity School where I attended. And his name was Dr. Lyle Dorset. And he was an Anglican, ordained as an Anglican priest. And just a brilliant man, godly man, intense man. And he was probably well into his 80s when I had him as a professor. And he just retired recently. But when you saw him in the hallway and you said, hey, Dr. Dorset, he was very personable, very approachable. He had us in his home several times uh, to, to give us cookies and meet his wife and hang out. And you'd say, hey, Dr. Dorset, he'd say, hi, Nathan. And he'd, he'd, he'd come intensely shake your hand and look into your eyes and say, how's your soul? <laughs> and it was terrifying at first. I was like, man, this guy's intense. It's 8 o'clock on Thursday. I'm not ready for this kind of intense conversation. You know, I'm saying, oh, it's... And of course, I said, it's good, it's good, my soul's good. He said, is it? <laughs> you know? And you're like, uh, yeah, I think so. You know? And he'd say, meet me in my office at 2 p.m. I can tell something's going on. And he, and he was right. He was right. He wasn't content to just hear surface pleasantries. He would meet with you one-on-one -on -one and, and say, you know, something's on your heart, Nathan, what is it? You know, and you tell him what's going on, and you, you bear your soul to him in his office, trusting that he, he would take that into confidence and pray for you and, and walk with you through whatever was going on. And he would hold my hands, I remember, and pray for me in this beautiful, intense way. We need to be more like that, I think. I think church can be one of those places where we are the least vulnerable when we should, this should be a safe place. A house of prayer for all nations is what Jesus said in our text last week. I think at church we often feel compelled to come in here and act like we have it all together, act like we're all fine and upstanding, that our spiritual walk is perfectly in step with the Holy Spirit, that our families have it all together, that our children are perfect, that we, our marriages are all healthy. I know the reality is not like that. And the, the thing is that there's no faking it with God. When we come into God's house, there is no faking it before our Lord and Savior. He knows exactly how our souls are doing before we say a word, before we have to utter or confess any truth about what's going on. The truth that Jesus knew in this text, he knew the truth, it says, about what was in man. That truth that he knew is that we are more desperately flawed and broken than we ever dared to admit, all of us. We are all deeply affected by sin. We've all been given the same terminal diagnosis of sin. We're all in the same sinking boat of sin and desperately in need of a savior. That's why Jesus is so important. That's why he's the savior, because we're in need of rescue and only he can do it. But our culture is bent on trying to tell us that we're okay. I told you about the book that came out in the 60s, I think. I'm okay, you're okay. The kids are all right. That's a, a movie. You know, everything's okay. I, I said this in a sermon a couple years ago about Morgan's face wash, and someone stopped me after church and said, I use that same face wash. It's called philosophy, and it's the, it says purity on it, and it has this long, like, philosophical spiel, and I think it's, every time I see it, I just get angry. It says, purity is natural. 
We come into this world with all the right instincts. We are innocent and therefore perceive things as they should be rather than how they are. Our conscience is clear, our hands clean, and the world at large is truly beautiful. It is at this time we feel most blessed. To begin feeling young again, we must begin with the most basic step of all, the daily ritual of cleansing. <laughs> it's a message meant to, to move product, right? It's, it's trying to sell you something. Wash your face and you'll be innocent and pure as a baby, you know? Not true. In fact, that's a lie. In fact, it's a lie from the pit of hell that'll lead us to destruction. We are born sinful. Remember Psalm 51 after David is, is caught in this affair with Bathsheba? He, he says, surely I was sinful from birth. Surely I was born in iniquity, he says, brought forth in sin, born into a fallen world. We call this the doctrine of original sin. It's the idea that from the minute we take our first breath, our default mode is to be bent in on ourselves, is what St. Augustine said back in the 300s. Our, our default mode is to be drawn towards sin like a moth to a flame. And it's because we're born into a sinful world that ever since Genesis 3, this is the way it's been. And for anyone who wants to fight me on this or denies this doctrine, I would love to invite you to spend five minutes with my two-year-old son. <laughs> the, the depths of Isaiah's depravity are shocking, honestly. We need your prayers. Uh, we need your prayers to, to train him up in the way that he should go and not in the way that his natural state would take him apart from intervention, severe intervention. Several months ago, we, we have some of the godliest, sweetest preschool workers in this church, and they are saints who don't get enough credit and don't get enough recognition for what they do, and I am eternally grateful for them taking my two-year-old every Sunday morning so that we can do what we do in here apart from his depraved distractions. And one morning, a few months ago, Morgan was walking him in to his preschool class, and this sweet preschool worker said, Isaiah, welcome to church. We're so glad you're here. And he hauled off and kicked her. This sweet, you know, older lady just kicked her. And Morgan, she's mortified. She's just mortified. You know, what in the world, Isaiah? Why would you do that? Because he's born sinful. The other day, Isaiah and Jude were upstairs. Uh, and Isaiah's verbal now, which adds a whole new component to his depravity. And I was getting ready, and Morgan and May were somewhere, and I said, it's time to go, boys. Let's go downstairs now. And Jude said, Isaiah, it's time to go. And Isaiah, without looking up from whatever he was playing with, said, who cares? <laughs> and Jude was like, what? 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 He told me this morning. I said, I'm going to tell that story today. He said, that was the first time I heard him be so sassy. <laughs> I said, I know, man. It's, it's, it's bad. We're born sinful. We need a Savior to rescue us from the sin that we're born into. Because we all have our issues. Because we're born sinful and we live in a fallen world. We all indwell the same fallen flesh that constantly is at war with our spiritual nature. That constantly tries to destroy us, again, like a moth to a flame. I had an amazing, another professor at Beeson uh, who taught pastoral counseling. 
And she was a, a former nun. She grew up in the projects of Baltimore, just an amazing lady. Published several, several books, Patricia Outlaw. And before every class, she would, you know, she has all these degrees, two doctorate degrees. She would make us recite after her. We'd repeat. She said, I got issues. I got issues. You got issues. You got issues. And then we'd all say together, all God's children got issues. <laughs> just a reminder that we all have our baggage. The reality is that we all carry baggage with us, and we need Jesus alone to remove the, the chains and the bondage that we are born into and that we carry with us. I had a friend at a former church who I would meet with for coffee periodically, and he was about 20 years older than, than I am, and I, I think he felt like I was kind of naive, you know, as a young, you know, optimist and enthusiastic youth minister. I remember him saying one time, Nathan, it wouldn't surprise me at all if pastor so-and-so was a drug dealer. And I said, what? Our pastor at the time was a very conservative, straight-laced kind of guy. I said, what? He said, it wouldn't surprise me at all. It would disappoint me. It would sadden me. But it wouldn't surprise me because I know that all of us are capable of such egregious, sinful acts that nothing would surprise me. I love how, if, if you want to see people who are openly vulnerable about their hurts, their habits, and their hang-ups, come to celebrate recovery on Monday nights at 7 o'clock here. There's a meal beforehand at 6 where you can hang out. The cool thing about it, too, is you don't have to be in recovery to come. You can just come meet some guys and pray with them. Uh, it's, they've had 50, 55-plus that have been meeting up there. They're, they're hitting new attendance highs. And it's, it's a beautiful thing to see people who just openly say, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with this. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm, I'm in need of recovery. And, and it is kind of a 12-step program, but they name that higher power. It's not like you're just praying to the sky. You're praying to Jesus Christ, the only one who can break the chains of bondage and addiction. We're all in need of rescue. Come on seven, at 7 o'clock on Monday and see what it looks like when people are authentically vulnerable in front of each other. And it's not just our culture that says, I'm okay, you're okay either. I, I keep hearing Christians, so-called Christians, and, and authors and bloggers, who, seminary professors who say, yeah, it's okay, we're not really flawed. Lots of these blogs that I read have things in them, and the two arguments I hear the most for this are, one, we just need to love people. You can't tell them they're flawed. That's mean. And two, if, if we don't change our stance on things, then we're going to become irrelevant and the church is going to die. I don't think that's true, either of them. I was reading a blog post on a Baptist news site written by a, a seminary president, and she says this, in quote, wise pastors, I hope I'm trying to be a wise pastor, hold enormous power to assure persons that God welcomes them fully and does not find them essentially flawed. I'm grateful to know a number of these pastors and they have deep capacity to facilitate healing as they listen and love. God does indeed welcome all people fully. I hope our church is a church like that where we welcome all people, no matter what kind of background you are coming from, no matter what you look like, no matter what your economic status is, no matter what, all people are welcome in this house to come and worship and join us 
for what God is doing in this place. I hope that we can be a church. I think we are a very welcoming church, and I'm proud of that. We got room to grow there, too. But to tell people that they are not flawed is not loving. It's, it's lying to them. That's not loving. It's the opposite of loving. It's a lie that leads to destruction. We can't tell people they're okay when they're not okay. Tim Keller says, the gospel is this, the good news, good news. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we ever dared hope. I think that's true. The, the depths of our depravity have to be understood in order for the greatness of God's forgiveness and grace and love to be understood. You can't have one without the other. If you're okay, you don't need a savior. If you're not flawed, you don't need rescue and you don't need Jesus. That's the human condition part of this text, okay? So let's move on to the, the believing part. What is the nature of true belief? We see here in this text that it's possible to claim belief in Jesus Christ without actually knowing who Jesus really is. There have been several books written in the last few years about this phenomenon of, of cultural Christianity in which people assume that they're right with God because they go to church sometimes or because they give some money to the church or because they might even teach a Bible study class or lead a scout troop or whatever it is that they do. But I've, I've said before that being in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car, right? That's not what does it. It's the dilemma of the unconverted believer. This is what we're going to get into in next week's sermon about being born again. Kyle Eidelman, a pastor in Kentucky, wrote, not a fan. I think Randy and... Uh, Randy and some others have led this study. Elizabeth, y'all have gone through this before. Not a fan, like five or six times, a small group. It's great. It's a great book. Eidelman says, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. That's not Christianity. That's not discipleship, is it? Jesus says in Luke 9.23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Where is he going? He's going to Calvary. He's going the way of pain and suffering, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. And, and he calls us to take up our cross and follow him to Calvary, to die to ourselves in order that he may live through us. That's what discipleship looks like. In a great preacher text, Eidelman writes about the difference between fans of Jesus and actual disciples. He says, fans don't mind Jesus doing a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants to com a complete renovation. Fans come to Jesus thinking tune-up, but Jesus is thinking overhaul. Fans think a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking makeover. Fans think a little decorating is required, but Jesus wants a complete remodel. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. You know, in the Bible Belt where we live, a lot of people are just going through these motions of church. They're playing at their worship, like I said last week, without experiencing the radical 
life-changing encounter with the living God that drives them to their knees and cries out, Lord, save me. In his book, Follow Me, David Platt says, scores of people here and around the world, if you've ever been to Europe, you know the cultural Christianity there runs deep. People in Spain would say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm I'm Spanish. (laughs) It's not the same thing. He says that people here and around the world culturally identify themselves as Christians who biblically are not followers of Christ. This creates a real sense of confusion about the nature of authentic faith in Jesus. We can so dilute Christian faith to the point where we don't actually have it. In Psalm 50, the Lord God speaks to the people of Israel about truly worshiping him from the heart and not just going through the empty cult rituals of temple worship. In verse 8 of Psalm 50, he says, Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. You're doing great with the sacrifices. That's not my problem. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. It wasn't that they weren't bringing enough goats and bulls and rams. They were doing fine with the sacrifices. It's that their hearts were far from him. They weren't resembling the covenant people that he sought to create for himself In Isaiah 29, 13, the the prophet Isaiah hears the Lord, and after seeing the superficial worship of his people, he says that these people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The heart is what it's about. Where is your heart today? True belief in Christ must involve two fundamentals. First, that we're hopelessly in need of rescue. And second, that only Jesus can save us from what's killing us. Without these, we're just fans of Jesus. So the question before us today is, are you truly a disciple of Christ? Are you not a fan of Jesus, but you are a disciple of Jesus? If so, it should cost you your life. Have you taken up your cross today and yesterday and the day before it, the day before it, and tomorrow? in order to follow Jesus even unto death? Are you you faking it? Are you appearing to have it all together when inside you're hurting? You may be stuck in habitual sin. You may have secrets that you don't need to carry because Jesus Christ invites you into the light and into freedom, true freedom in Christ. It's all about our hearts. Where's your heart today? How's your soul? as Dr. Dorset would say. We're gonna pray and then we're gonna sing our hymn of response, The Heart of Worship. Jason led us in this song last week and it's an appropriate response to this text this morning. There's a line in this song that says, I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. Jesus sees what's in us. Our pretense does no good here today. He sees the reality of what's going on in our souls. Will we allow him to come in, perform open heart surgery this morning, to remove the the parts that need to go, to to remodel what needs to be changed, to, to totally restore us into a right relationship with him? Let's pray. Our Lord God, we 
thank you for your word. We thank you that you are omniscient, omnipotent, that you are completely good, and yet you reign supreme, that you see everything, you know everything, that all of our, our pretense, all of our trying to fake it until we make it, that you see through all that. God, you know our hearts. You know our, our anger. You know our resentment. You know the jealousy that we feel. You know the guilt and the shame that lingers in our hearts. You know the grudges that we refuse to let go of. God, you know the bitterness, the strife that goes on inside of us. I pray that this morning you would open our hearts and remove all of that from us so that we could authentically follow you. We know it's scary, God, to walk in the light means showing people who we truly are. It demands a, a level of trust and vulnerability. I pray that you would help us as a church to develop that kind of trust, to develop that kind of vulnerability that Celebrate Recovery demonstrates every week by bearing our souls to one another, by sharing our hurts, our habits, our hangups with one another so that we don't have to carry these burdens by ourselves. You've given us a family of faith to walk in, to live in. God, I pray that you would help us to live in the light as you call us into your marvelous light and out of the darkness. God, I pray that as you look into our hearts now, that you would come and move as only you can, and we would trust you afresh as we come to you in repentance and humility because you know what's in us. Help us to truly believe with all of our hearts in you, our perfect Savior, who's come to rescue us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ and you feel like the Holy Spirit's moving in your life and you want to come and accept him as your Lord and Savior for the first time, I'm going to be here at the front. I'd love to talk with you about that and pray with you about what that means. If you need a family of faith and you're not a member of this church yet, we believe in church membership here, that being a part of what God's doing here means that you sign up and that you join us. We're not perfect. Every one of us is flawed and we all got our issues just like you do. I invite you to come and walk this journey of faith with us as we see where God is taking Woodmont Baptist Church into blessing our neighborhood and the world, bringing hope and healing to those who desperately need it. Maybe you just want to come and pray at the altar. I'm going to invite Jan, if, if you'll come up here. I'm going to invite Sarah Collier, if you'll come up here. I'm gonna, if you want to pray with someone, Carlos Ruslan, if you'll come up here too. If you want, I, I've prayed with all these people. They're prayer warriors. If you just want to pray with one of them today and, and tell them what's going on and have them pray for you, that'd be wonderful. If, if you just need to come kneel at the altar, that's fine too. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, let's stand and sing the heart of worship.